We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. <laughs> Welcome back, dear listener. Welcome back, uh, live stream participants. Um, Welcome back, YouTube watchers. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast and broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) With a bit of luck, it's working. So uh, my name is Trevor. I am the Iron Fist. This is the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. This is a weekly podcast where we talk about news, politics, religion, sex, changes in our society. What's happening to our civilization? Is it onwards and upwards in a Stephen Pinker? Is Stephen Pinker correct or is it... A bit more of a pessimistic sort of thing happening. So uh, we'll find out. The longer I've been hanging around you, the more pessimistic I've become. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think more realistic. But in any event, uh, we do this every week and there's normally a panel of us, sometimes a special guest, but this time it's just our normal panel. With me as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day Trevor, g'day Paul, g'day listeners. How are we all? They're all good, hopefully. And Paul, the 12th man, welcome aboard again, g'day, Paul. Everyone. How are you all? <laughs> We're all good. So, we're up to episode 212, and once again, uh, religion and all sorts of stuff uh, is, has been in the mix in terms of news, and one thing I do want to mention, just a little bit of a, of a reflection, actually. When you were a kid, like little, like five or six, did you watch a lot of afternoon television? Yes. Did you love it? Yes. Sit down in front of it? And just, do you know, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day, Trevor and mm-hmm. Scott, and do you know, my um, sad, sad to say, my father was a bit of an absent parent you know he was he was either at work or at the pub or at the races or playing golf and I didn't see a lot of him but mm-hmm. my, I, I was thinking about that and I was thinking I watched so much afternoon television most of it um, you know popular American television programs I think that I learned a lot I absorbed a lot of social values from television mm-hmm. in lieu of not having a you know parents around to teach me stuff, you know what I mean. You learnt sort of family behaviour from the Brady Bunch. Well, I, and stuff I like think that. I, I just learned. <laughs> I didn't watch the Brady Bunch. No, mm. it was more. It was earlier than that. It was more mm. like uh, Jungle Jim and Skippy. Uh, not so much Skippy. Jungle oh. Jim, Superman, stuff like that. Okay. The know? reason I mention it is I used when, to love Skippy. Yeah. Did you? When you're a kid and it's time for the afternoon sort of stuff that you're used to, your regular shows, are always, it was regular, it was consistent, you knew what was happening and you'd sit down in front of it and you'd love it. You know, you know what I really hated, what I really hated what was, that? was when those bloody Americans decided to put a man on the moon and broadcast it in the afternoon and interrupt my, did my that television. Did your afternoon <laughs> viewing? <laughs> it did. That is my memory, dear listener, because oh. we're, we're celebrating, it's 50 years since... Uh, Tim and walked on the moon, and on my honestly, I was about—I was five. Yeah, I was a bit older. Yeah, see, I was only five, and gosh, I was annoyed. Oh. This guy was landing on the moon right during the middle of my yeah. of my afternoon television <laughs> session. Couldn't wait for it to be over so I could oh. get back to Skippy or whatever. Isn't that's, that terrible? That's a bit sad. It is. Yeah. yeah. So, but you know, I was five, so I cut me some slack. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there we go. So yeah, if you slack see, has been cut for you. Thank mm. you. Scott, you weren't, were you? No, I wasn't, wasn't even around. I wasn't even around. There I, was you go. I, was, I was in it the early years of high school. Yeah. So, so it, was, you would have it was a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. I used to love all those footages when I, when I grew up and that's the stuff I watched it. I loved it. And 
one of the best trips I've ever had was um, I went over to Florida because we had a subsidiary over there and I had a weekend away down at the Kennedy Space Center. I loved it. Wow. It was incredible. And those Saturn V rockets are enormous. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go into the moon pavilion, I suppose they'd call it, where they've got a moon rock that you can touch and you go through Yeah, they've got a moon You're allowed rock. to contaminate it. Well, you're allowed to touch it, yes. <laughs> Could you imagine the germs that are on that moon Absolutely. Rock? There's a hell of a lot there. I'm no <laughs> doubt about that. Everybody <laughs> washed your hands afterwards. I did wash my hands oh. afterwards, yeah. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, you just walk and they've got, when you go into this pavilion, above you on the, is a replica of the rocket and this thing is enormous. Mm. It is absolutely huge. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, you went through all the space suits and all that sort of stuff. It is incredible. So. See. Staggering technological achievement. Mm. And you know what I find really incredible? It's all done with slide rules. Mm. None of the design work was done with computers or anything like that. It was engineers that were doing it with graph paper, slide rules and all that sort of stuff. Mm. It was an age of innovation and 70% income tax. Absolutely. And high government intervention. And they spent something like 5% of the American federal budget on that program, mm. which was quite a lot of money. A lot came out of it. Mm. Mm. A hell of a lot came out of it. And this is the whole, I can understand why the Yanks don't appreciate NASA. However. You can understand oh, why I can they un- don't. I, I can understand why they don't because yeah. you know, the tax, like you said, 5% of the federal budget was, sort of was spent on that one mm. program. I can understand the American taxpayer being annoyed at it. So mm. I think that because humanity has gained a lot, I think it would be better. If you're, we, you're not about to announce a contribution by everybody. Absolutely. To yes. the US <laughs> space. Oh, God. <laughs> no, then you, rather than calling it NASA, you'd have it set up as the human space program. Well, the right, Indians okay. have just launched a mission to the moon. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. In the last 24 hours, I think. Right. Israel crashed along the moon too. So, mm. you know, th- there's a whole lot of people that are talking about going back to the moon right now and Elon mm. Musk is one of them. So. I, I, think the t- I think the impetus is that, I think there's lots of minerals out there in the asteroid belt and stuff. And yeah. there might be just a big floating hunk of silver or something out there. And maybe yeah. on the moon itself there could be it? useful minerals. Mm. There's, there's talk about water and that sort of stuff. They're going to harvest the water. They're going to split into hydrogen and oxygen to fuel for the next jet set out to um, Mars. Mm. Right. That was meant to be a very uh, short two-minute diversion, but once again extended. Let's talk about <laughs> more current affairs George Columbaris, dear listener, <laughs> so famous for being on MasterChef, a well-done program, like for what it is, extremely well done, right. But um, he has a chain of well, a number of restaurants and got into trouble because he hadn't been paying his staff according to the correct wage rates and that had been doing it for a long time and initially announced that he, was, he owed his staff something like $2 million dollars and then it came out that it was closer to six or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, he had a gig with the West Australian Tourism Board who had signed him up to spruik all of the wonders of Western Australian food, wine. And once it came out, the sort of backlash about how much he owed his staff and a lot of people were upset that the penalty handed out to him seemed to be quite slight. Um, basically... Tourism Board for Western Australia sacked him from their from the job as ambassador and whatever. As well they should have. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. probably after spending quite a lot of money to, um, you know, make videos and set up the program, mm. they've 
They've wasted money, haven't they, on him? Mm. So we're in agreement that that was a fair enough thing oh, to do. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So I, I put out a little meme on Facebook because I was comparing it to the Israel Folau case because it seems to me that Israel Folau was sacked by the ARU for poor behaviour and Colin Barris was sacked by Western Australian Tourism for poor behaviour. Not the same. Not the same at all. Right. No, I think it is. Falau didn't. I, I can count on underpay you. Underpay his <laughs> staff. I can count. No, he didn't so underpay staff his staff. He didn't underpay his staff. But what he did was he engaged in conduct via social media that was against his um, employment contract with the ARU, and that is why he was sacked. He wasn't sacked because he was homophobic or anything else. He was sacked because he breached the conditions that were set up in his contract with the ARU. But, he didn't but, but the point of it was deliberately underpay staff, no, right? No, he didn't. It's a completely different, well, no. uh, you know, infraction of proper behaviour. But it's it's an infraction of proper behaviour. Is 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 the reason the underlying reason why both of them were sacked? True. No, I don't think so. It, well, think, it was a well, perception a, by the rugby union that Falau had behaved inappropriately. It was a perception, yes. yes. But in the Colin Barris case. Right. It's a clear legal infraction. Right. So is the difference that in the Colin Barris case he did an illegal action? Is that what it, is that what it has to yeah, be? Absolutely did an, an illegal act. Yeah, but is that what makes it uh, – so you're saying Falau should not have been sacked. That's my feeling. <clears throat> yeah. And you're saying that um, Colin Barris should have been sacked from his Western Australian tourism position. I think it was appropriate, yeah. Right. And why, are you, why the difference? Why is one okay and one is not? Because one was robbing his, his, his staff and mm. Falau was just, you know, spouting religious nonsense. Right. So from the point of view of Western Australian tourism, why did they want to sack him? Because he brought their brand into disrepute. Yeah. Mm. Right. If you why, have... And why did I, the rugby union want to sack Falau? Because he because brought their brand into disrepute. Uh, that's, a, that's debatable, I think. I right. think that's highly debatable. Right. I mean, if they hadn't made such a big deal of it, I don't think it, most people would have given a fuck, to be perfectly frank. No, but I think... They blew it up out of all proportion. I mean, he's, he posted some ridiculous religious dogma uh, which everybody should have just laughed at and said, oh... You know, the poor man, you know, he believes in that archaic religious dogma written by people who didn't know where the sun went at night, for goodness sake. Why would anybody care, you know, what he thinks, you know, at church or in his private life? They, they made a big deal out of what was just a really trivial piece of nonsense. There you go. <laughs> Did you want to say anything, Scott, before I continue? Um, I just... Part of me agrees with Paul that I think that the better way to handle it would have been to ridicule him and that sort of stuff and say, look, this guy still believes in fairies at the yes, bottom of the garden. Exactly. However, I honestly believe that Alan Joyce probably got on the phone and said, someone's got to shut him up. Yeah. 
And yeah. that is what that's what they should do. You, do you suppose Alan Joyce is a religious believer? No, he's not. He's no. gay. Well, <laughs> I mean, some gay people believe in fairies too. Yeah, right? I know that. But you know, but Alan Joyce really should have just ignored it as well. But, but, he just but Qantas, but Alan Joyce, Alan Joyce is head of Qantas, and Qantas is a, Quant- is a big sponsor. I know, of was, I know Qantas, who Alan Joyce was. Is. Qantas entitled to withdraw their sponsorship? And you know, could they? They're make, entitled at any a, time. Okay, so so the ARU could. Expect that that Qantas might withdraw its sponsorship. Look, as I said, I think you they all yes sh- no they all <laughs> they all should have just said, "Poor Israel, fall out." At, at the risk, look of- at the stupid nonsense that he thinks is real. At the risk of, of covering ground we've already covered, dear listener, if you're new to the show, we, we have done Falao 101 a few episodes back. <laughs> God damn it! This um this streaming is disconnecting, Scott. Right, gentlemen, we were just going to finish off with Falao. And what I wanted to really get to was I think a lot of people would say the difference between the Columbaris case and the Falao case is that Columbaris clearly did an illegal activity, whereas Falao was undertaking an activity which was subjective as to whether you thought it was. um, It was more of a social faux pas than a a legal In your humble opinion. In my humble opinion. So if you think illegality is a major reason why, um, a major difference, I would just say to you, um, be aware of double jeopardy. So if we're saying to employers, it's okay to sack an employee if they've done an illegal activity, which they've been punished for in the courts, and really, when you sack them on top of that, uh, you're really giving them a double punishment for the same offence. So you think Columbaris should be suing the WA Government Tourism Board? No, but I'm just saying that if for people who say the difference is illegality is the criteria that you need in order to be able to sack somebody, I would say to you that sort of goes against the principles of justice where we say you shouldn't be sacking people for an offence that's already been dealt with in the courts. That's what the court system is for. Indeed. So so some people would think as an additional punishment being levied out. So um, my view on this is that it's really whether it's relevant to the job or not. Mm. So if Colin Barris was, I don't know, running his restaurants and as a sideline was a night taxi driver or something and the taxi company wanted to sack him, I'd say you can't because... It's nothing to do with his job as a taxi driver, but as his job as as a role model, yes. it's relevant. Yes. Same with Falao, it was relevant to his job as a role model. If he was a park rugby player, not relevant. Did you but see anyway. the article about Falao's family? Yes. Would you like to move on to that one? That was interesting. Yeah, and it to me it showed that Falao appears to be acting out, you know, the way his father wants him to act out rather mm. than perhaps his own personal inclination. Mm. Did, did, did you read that one, Scott? I haven't read it, no. Okay, so this was from Kate McClim- McClimont in The Age. And basically, well, I'll read a bit of it here. The 30-strong congregation of the Truth of Jesus Christ Church established by Falao's father, Enoi, any, any Enoi? in 2013, believes the everlasting torture and doom of hell awaits most Christians. Most Christians. Yeah. Basically everybody outside his 30-strong church, (laughs) (laughs) which is a pretty incredible claim, isn't it? Yes. So he 
sort of sees himself as a modern-day prophet in a sense. He does. Really? Yeah. Uh, with Catholicism seen as the synagogue of Satan and masked <laughs> devil worship. This is for Laos Church, dear listener. Oh, good God. So, so, so is it any wonder that, you know, he's got himself into trouble being associated with such an outlandish cult leader like his father? Mm. So a Christian parent of a promising young rugby player was concerned when Israel Folau began inviting players to his church. Uh, the parent decided to find out for herself what the Falaos were preaching. What she discovered has disturbed her greatly. Quote here, I honestly do not want my son involved in what I have come to understand is false teachings and counterfeit Christianity. I've gone, I've checked it out, and I would call them an isolated hate group. She said of her attendance at Bible studies at the home of Pastor Eni, as he calls himself as well as discussions with Eni's disciple, the 20-year-old nephew, Josiah. Um, the Falaos told her if she had an accident on the way home from Bible study, she would go to hell because she was not a born-again Christian. Anyone who's been baptised in a different way to the Falaos is heading to perdition. <laughs> ah, they, have to be, in hell. they have to be fully immersed in water, done the Falaos way, and um, one of those who won't be saved is Prime Minister Scott Morrison whose Pentecostal Horizon Church teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. When the parent asked Falaos if Mr Morrison was a Christian, they laughed and said, no, he's a Hillsong. Mm. Only we have the truth, the Falaos said. Weren't the Falaos associated with Hillsong at some point? Originally. So yeah. they were Mormons well, they were originally. Mormons, yes. yes. And Mormonism is quite strong in the South Pacific, interestingly. Mm, very, yeah. Which is bizarre. Yeah. I mean, totally bizarre that people would give up their own superstition to embrace a superstition invented by a 19th century American. They should have been satisfied with their animist sort of Wouldn't you um, think? things that they had going already, perhaps. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. Well, I think that the problem for Falau might have been with the Mormons, you've got to do your missionary years, where two years you don't do any work and you head off with a brother and go to deepest, darkest yeah. Africa and try and convert people. Or and Japan. That, that would have been a major hit to uh, the bottom line if he'd have done that. So mm. it was before he had to do his that stint that he decided to leave and go to um, sort of uh, Hillsong, know. the Hillsong How old branch. was he when they when they left Mormons and went to Hillsong? I, it was before he did his missionary work. Okay. Yeah. Mm. It might have been about 20 Good timing. Mm, very convenient timing. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, de they're very much against the uh, the Trinity, which in itself is – Understandable because let's the face Trinity it, the Trinity is bizarre. A, a, a yes. bizarre. So maybe they're not so crazy after all. Mm. <laughs> Just a little if they, bit crazy. If, you know, if they said, you know, the Trinity's a load of nonsense. And just stop there, then they'd be fine. But they'd have us almost that, that's right. as members, wouldn't they? <laughs> but they have to blow it by insisting that they've got the one true faith. It's and in fact, this word truth pops up again and again and again in yeah. anything uh, spoken by the Falaos, doesn't it? They yeah. believe they have the truth yes. with a capital T. Yeah. Of Gents. course, the capital T is the cross that Christ is on, of course. But. Yeah. Gents, can we just back this up? Yeah. How can they be opposed to the Trinity? I thought the Trinity was biblical. Uh, well, they're saying it's not biblical. No, I think yeah, the they're saying that you don't invented. find the Trinity in the, the Bible. It was invented, wasn't it? Mm. Third or fourth century, something like that. Yes. It wasn't yeah, it original is, a, Christian doctrine. Mm, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Um, 
Uh, they say the parent was also told of the falseness of the doctrine of the Trinity, a belief held by most mainstream Christians. When she pointed out that most Christians would not be saved, Josiah Falau replied, Look at what Scripture says. It doesn't matter that there's only a few of us actually believing in the truth. Only eight people were saved when the whole world was destroyed in Noah's time. Well, there you go. <laughs> it's a compelling a argument. <laughs> and you as a lawyer should recognise a precedent when you see it. Yeah, well, that's right. It's, it's a compelling argument. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. These people are weird, aren't they? Uh, well, they believe nonsense, yeah. you know. We always knew he was – like I, I use the word nutter fairly frequently on this podcast, but, but I reckon with these guys <laughs> – They are complete it's, nutters, it's a, yeah. It's an apt description. But they're nutters not because they're, um, you know, uh, certifiably insane. They're nutters just because they believe such utter nonsense. Yeah, yeah they're full on, so we'll give them that much. They're do you committed. know where they do the immersion baptisms? In the in the swimming pool of the um, rather nice house bought in Kenthurst, I think it is, in the northwest suburbs of Sydney. They do, in a kidney-shaped Pebble Creek pool mm. at the back of the Falau's house. Yeah. It, what, what more sacred venue could you imagine? Indeed. <laughs> kidney-shaped. There must be something, you know, significant in that shape. Very yeah. different to the Jordan River, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> what they say is uh, those close to Falau say his father wields enormous influence in his son's life. He is a director of his son's investment vehicles. Yeah. Um, Falau, 30, has a vast property empire, including two houses in Queensland and a multi-million dollar apartment in Little Bay where he lives with his wife, New Zealand netball star Maria. Falau is also building uh, two four-bedroom homes on vacant land. As well as uh, filial... Does he not have any kids? Uh, not, yet. not yet. As well as filial obedience, Polynesian culture also espouses the sharing of wealth with your extended family. Sounds very indigenous, doesn't it? Sounds like he's under a lot of pressure from uh, family members, I reckon. Especially from dad. Yeah, I think so. So, um, I'm just so are we going to cut Israel a little bit of slack now, are we? No, we're not. Well, <laughs> he's been indoctrinated. He has. Uh, and he's so been under his father's um, control all his life. Yeah. Yeah, he may well have been, but surely, you know, he's 30 years old, did you say? Yeah, he's a big yeah. boy. Exactly. <laughs> By the time you're 30, wouldn't you think you'd just sit there and you'd say, Jesus Christ, Dad, shut up. You, you would you think. Know. Look, you or I would have said it, Scott, but, I mean, coming from that sort of culture, perhaps the Polynesian culture is still quite strong um, with Israel, you know. He, mm. he doesn't want to be disloyal to his culture. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I for better or worse. Let's you know, that's ignoring the fact that they 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 totally discarded their traditional beliefs and embraced Mormonism. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. there you go. I'm prepared to cut him some slack in that sense. Um that um but he's been indoctrinated. He has. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I think he's gotta learn that there are consequences to the indoctrination indeed. that he's Continuing to hold on to. Yeah. Well, there are consequences for all of us on his list, Scott. I know. We're all going to hell because we're all sitting here drinking beer right now, mm. you know. Mm. I'm going to hell twice because I'm a drunkard and I'm gay. You know, mm. so. well, <laughs> let's go back to uh, um, where we were, which was I was going to move on to Tasmania. Yes. And a Tasmanian man, James Durston, has been fined $2,000 for failing to apologise for anti-gay flyers. 
that he distributed in Hobart in 2013. So he distributed some flyers in Sandy Bay and the flyers had things such as, quote, it is warned that homosexuality should not be tolerated and therefore this will benefit both the individual and society. Further on, the flyers claimed that lesbians were 307 times more likely to die in accidents than white women aged 25 to 44 and that gay men were 10 times more likely to die as a result of an accident. And it also suggested just 8% of gay men live to an old age compared to just a quarter of lesbians. Like, clearly this is just nutty stuff. Like, this, this doesn't guy's really... mental, yeah. To me, that simply says crazy, <laughs> really... It doesn't have a, the tinge of nastiness that you kind of get it's from just, some of this stuff sometimes. To yeah, me, that's, then, that, that's clearly just... It's wacko. Nothing. Yeah, it is it, wacko. It's wacko, but yeah. then you, you could also then, does that put you in the same camp as Paul then where you say that, you know, his, that Falau was acting wacko when he said you're going to go to hell? I, I think so. I think people would just take something like that from their letterbox and go, wacko. In, 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 yeah, well, but. Pop it in got, the recycling bin. Yeah, yeah, but you then got this other thing here where there was <laughs> someone who said something about the young LGBT. Oh, there it is. I wanted a public apology because that would have undone some of the damage caused by the flyer, particularly to the young, vulnerable LGBTI people. And I can understand that because when you've got something that says... This, this Tasmanian flyer you think was dang, dangerous? It was like, a like, little more dangerous to the children that might be reading it because it says that, you know, that, that, that only 8% of them or whatever that made it through to old age. Is it more yeah. dangerous than me watching Superman as a five-year-old and then tying a, you know, a towel around my shoulders and jumping off the roof of the garage in the backyard, which I did, trying to emulate Superman? Mm. Was it any more dangerous than that? No. Yeah. Look, so why wasn't Superman banned from the no, airwaves? Superman shouldn't have been banned from the airwaves. I mean, this how many the, other kids like me jumped off the roof of their garage trying to fly like Superman? How'd you go? I flew <laughs> straight down <laughs> to the. Fortunately, the the ground was covered in you know thick grass, and I and I, I survived the <laughs> flight. Fortunately, look when you both said before, well, Falau said something wacko, and this guy said something wacko. Yeah, and well. In both cases, they should not have faced a, a criminal penalty. No, that's right. So I don't think this guy should have got a state-sanctioned penalty. No, so I agree with he that. He was asked to apologise and then he... He refused to apologise, so yeah, they fined him, him $2,000 for not apologising. Yeah. Did they seriously for, expect for him to, to apologise? If he was yeah. that passionate yeah. in his beliefs mm. that he would spend money on printing these flyers and distributing them, clearly he wasn't going to retract it. Clearly. So anyway, that one seems to have fallen short of of the nastiness of some of these things. And the people who sort of lodged the complaint said it was uh, Robert Williams said he it was never his intention that Mr. Durston be punished financially. So he simply wanted an apology. And with the f- apology not coming, the guy was really in contempt of court. So it was kind of well, we've told you to do this. If you don't do it, now your problem is you're in contempt of court. Not so much for what you did as uh, with your flyers, it's now the court of uh, Tasmania has told you apologise, and you're now flouting the court, and you're in contempt. I so he's a regularly extract. Is it um, 
not Seventh Day Adventists, two of these crazies who distribute these little pamphlets with pictures of people sitting around with lions and tigers. Oh, that's the J-dubs, isn't it? The J-dubs, yes. Yeah. Should the J-dubs be banned from distributing their... Re- no. Of course not. No. It's harmless nonsense. Mm. And people treat it as such. Mm. They, you know, they take it out of the letterbox and go, oh, it's the J-dubs. It- you put it in the recycling bin where it belongs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you don't, <laughs> you don't legally sanction every crazy person out there because you'd, you'd never run out of them, True. would you? But with Allow, he had a dangerous component to him for young men who see him as wrong. Young men who believe in hell. Exactly, and they do. So well, that's the. That's, our education system is failing yeah. by not teaching them that yeah. hell is not a real place. We better move on to Falau. We, we could keep going to Falau could, for the yes. next five years of this podcast. He's a rich, a rich vein of <laughs> it is. material, isn't he? Yeah. I've got to start writing down your stated positions on Falau because you're a you. bit of a shifting. So it's like nailing jelly to a wall with you sometimes, Paul. Really? I think sometimes I know where you are and then you, <laughs> well, then you move. It's yeah. good to be flexible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um the other one in Tasmania was the Christian family yeah, who this is um, ridiculous. The honey merchants refused yeah. to pay tax, and so eventually the system caught up with them, and they were ordered to pay two point three million dollars. Mm. Scott, yeah, absolutely. And that was are, after they lost lost their house. Well, they had nine hundred. They had tax bills of nine hundred and thirty thousand dollars each. Yeah. Plus, there would have been penalties and all that sort of shit on top of it. So, it ended up being two point three. The million local dollars. council sold their house for not paying rates. Yeah. Uh, Correct. So they, they had a rates bill that they hadn't paid mm. and refused to pay and, um, yeah, so they eventually lost one of their houses. But, <clears throat> Scott, what does that tell you? They're in the honey farming business. Well, it says that honey is a very good business. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> like, you've got to be doing pretty well Absolutely. to rack up a $900,000 tax bill. Yeah, like I mean, you are making some good money. If it you, depends on how many years they hadn't lodged their tax returns for. Yeah, but... That's still still pretty good. I mean, you could probably get away with not lodging for about 10 years before Uncle, well, before, you know, Australia comes knocking on the door. Right. And, you know, that's $93,000 a year. That suggests that you've got a business that's paying 200 grand a year. So, yeah. Yeah. True. Earning good money from from money. There's money in honey. Yeah. I mean, not paying. There's been money in honey. Yeah. Not paying taxes. Who do these people think they are? They're Christians. Church or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Begs the question, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So anyway, I just love the names. Christian missionaries Fanny Alida Biraput and her brother Rembertus Cornelis Sounds a bit Biraput. Dutch, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Yeah. So. But, you know, I do not understand what planet these people are on that they think to themselves that, all we've got to do is just say God doesn't want us to pay income tax, therefore the court will side with us. I mean, do they not understand that the courts wouldn't be there if there wasn't an income tax base? Do they not understand the roads that they drive on to get their honey to market wouldn't be there if they didn't have council Apparently parent not. rates? Apparently these, not. People get very – these Christians get so selfish, don't you? Like Falau's selfish in his view of the world. Like, mm. And some of these people, they're mm. extremely selfish, I think. So much for Christian sort of compassion and thought for others. They're very selfish, these people. I think the government has bitten off, well, has has made a rod for their own back with this whole religious freedom thing. Mm. I think our courts could end up being clogged with Christians claiming that 
Jesus didn't want them to pay income tax. Well, you'll know why they'll be clogged. It's because of the judge's reasons in this case. Mm. So the reasons from this judge, in his judgment, Associate Justice Stephen Holt said he took issue with the absence of a specific reference in the Bible that supports their argument. So they were saying, we don't have to pay tax because... Uh, God didn't want us to. That's right. And... And the idiot he, judge the said, judge said, if it had been in the Bible, he would have accepted their by implication. Reasoning. He said, "Well, I'll quote some of his words here. If you can't find me a passage in Scripture or Gospel that says thou shalt not pay tax, then can you see I have a difficulty finding a starting point? I believe the submissions to be honestly and genuinely held beliefs, rather than an attempt to avoid tax liabilities. But in my view." The Bible effectively said that civil matters and the law of God operate in two different spheres. Why on earth does he think the Bible has any relevance? Exactly. This is a terrible decision by it's this judge. It's a terrible judge. judgment, isn't it's it? It's terrible because he's saying, well, your argument was that the Bible says you don't have to pay tax and when you couldn't show me anything in the Bible that says that, therefore I'm not, you know, I'm ordering so you to pay tax. So he accepts their reasoning so, as sincere. yeah. yeah. But, but if, misplaced. But presumably, if they said to him, oh, you're looking at the wrong edition of the Bible, here's one, and check out page 32, and it's, you know, what would he have done then? Yeah. Like, that's the most and would you, unbelievable and reasons. Would you, would you put it past some of our, um, our American uh, Christian friends? Mm. To print a dodgy page in the print, Bible? Yeah, yeah, to, to find a To page. rewrite the yeah. Bible to suit their purposes. Yeah, to find interpretation. But there's all sorts of laws that people <laughs> might want to flout where they would say, well, there's actually, I've decided I'd like to keep a slave, you know, and show <laughs> me in the Bible where it says, you know, it's okay to keep a slave. Well, actually, there's this passage here that seems to indicate it's probably okay. Oh, all right, then you can have a slave. Like, for goodness sake. Yeah, what like, a, this is a terrible what a decision. dumb judgment. Terrible decision. Well, I mean, it's. So, I would hope that the rulings and that sort of stuff get reversed on appeal, that they go in, they appeal, and then they get knocked on the head, but they get knocked on the head for a ge genuine reason right. when you say this With, is a secular different society. Reasons, but yeah. should, isn't yeah. there some overarching uh, body that monitors the, the judgments? Shouldn't they be reprimanding the judge for his stupidity? Well, this is where... The thing about judges is that they have, you know, tenure for life unless they have, unless there's really, you know, insane or, yeah. or terrible criminal conduct or whatever, like there's a, they can almost get away with. Or they, or they try to um, attribute their speeding fine to their wife or something like that. Yeah, so they, yeah. That I mean, it's embarrassing. Case, it? it's, that was a case, yeah. I mean, if, case. if they're getting cases wrong and it's and they're overturned on appeal all the time, it becomes embarrassing for them and they get relegated to, you know, unimportant cases perhaps. Yeah. But it's difficult to just sack one, I think. So I'm not saying this guy should be sacked, I don't know. But just you know, I haven't read the whole judgment, mm. but I've certainly seen that quote and I'm thinking, what the hell were you doing? To just giving some legitimacy to their argument yes, that, a, that what is in the Bible would count possibly to some extent, that you would even look in the Bible. should not have any relevance. Yeah. So. we. Uh, I mean, our legal system is allegedly a secular legal system. Mm. So it shouldn't be based on Except any Except you put your hand books. on a book and swear that you're going to tell the truth, though, doesn't it? I never have. Have mm. you? I'll look at different times I have. Yeah. yeah. Mm. With um, sincerity? No, but just for formality's reason. So, yeah. you know. 
This is the whole point. Like, it's just a, I, I listened to a podcast called the uh, can't think what it's called. A couple of guys out of Chicago. Anyway, I listened to that, and there's a there's a woman that's um, in the intro and that sort of stuff. She says, "I t- if I tell the truth, I tell the truth, not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish." Mm. You know. Yeah. Anyway, as a lawyer, you often have to um, swear on documents that you might be filing in a court case. You might be saying, these are all the documents I have to do with this matter or you might be swearing to something to do with the case. Mm. And, and um, you know, it's, it's often just easier to just put in the swearing rather than the affirmation and you just grab a Bible, I swear, sign it and off it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't now. I'm, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm much more. You're more principled. Ra- I'm much more rabid now than I was back then. I've had time to get really angry about stuff. So yeah, I, I would make the point now. Yeah, right. Um, one of the things to come out. Um, it seems like we're going to be getting as part of the new legislation when it appears as a new um, religious freedom commissioner. And uh, that really gives me the shits right. because the um, Ruddock Review said you didn't need a Religious Freedom Commissioner and mm-hmm. they've just ignored that and they're going to drive it in there and they're going to put in a new freedom Religious Freedom Commissioner. Yeah. I think Morrison probably personally th- thinks that will earn him brownie points with the Christian community. And it probably will. And perhaps beyond the Christian community with other religious communities. Mm. Anyway, that's where we're heading there and the sort of LGBTI sort of community is saying, well, if you're going to have a commissioner for religious freedom, then we want one for us mm. as well. Exactly. And who this else is, will want one? Exactly. Yeah. This is the whole point. It's going to get spiral out of control. We're going to with 50 commissioners that are looking after the religious, looking after the discrimination. I want a commissioner for underemployed teachers. Right. I think the LGBTI people, they're aiming too low. They, <laughs> they should be seeking a special voice in parliament. Yes. <laughs> or maybe a, an extra chamber in parliament. Mm. That's going to be next week. I've been talking, I've been promising. Look, dear listener, I'm, I've started writing everything down because oh, this has to be our, our ultimate Indigenous sort of affairs Episode where okay. we cover everything. So I'm not sure if I can read all the books I have in a week. But. Yeah. Well, just the ideas. I'm. I'm I've yeah. just quickly jotted down. I'm up to twelve key concepts that need to be okay. explored, and I reckon I'm about halfway. So that will be next week. I promise you. Yeah. Now, because it is a topic with the uh, Uluru as coming up, where it's people are rapidly climbing Uluru because it's soon going to be locked off to I- climbing, and we've got the. Uh, the, the statement and the, you know, is there- and even uh, f- uh, coalition government ministers are starting to come on board. Even Barnaby Joyce has mm. now said, "Oh, yeah, maybe I was wrong about it being a third chamber. So yeah. maybe, maybe we should start talking about it." Yeah. They're starting to come on board. Yeah. Do you know what I I but, saw? But, but don't fire off too much because we're going to do it next. Okay, week. but yeah. just just one interesting little yeah. item I saw on TV. And it was a story on, on ABC News, and, and that's the one I usually watch. It, it was a story about a kindergarten, I think in Melbourne, somewhere in Melbourne. And they've, um, they've decided rather than give the kids lots of toys, you know, typical plastic toys that kindergartens 
have on premises for the kids. They've thrown them all out and they've created a garden in the grounds of the kindergarten, which is a great idea. Mm-hmm. But they've. So good. Do you, know, do you know what they've also created? What they call an indigenous <laughs> a forest. Ceremony? No, an indigenous forest. Uh-huh. I mean, why isn't it just a forest, you know? Why does right. it have to have the word indigenous forest? And what right. is an indigenous forest, for goodness sake? It's and of course, on fire. That was it. It, was a, it wasn't even a forest, you know. I mean, it, you know, they had a bunch of trees and they had rocks and they had mud and a bit of water running so that the mm. kids could have a, a, a slide. They'd put on a special plastic suit so they didn't ruin their clothes. Right. And they're sliding. And, and that's all well and good and I, I think that's yeah. terrific. Yeah. You know, to kids to actually, yeah. Indigenous forests. But why did they have to add this extra word, indigenous? Okay. We'll add that to the topics next week. It's just crazy you know but of course they had and and look he's a fine actor they had this uh mature aged indigenous actor and and you know he's a he's a guy with a public profile so any dingo no it wasn't any dingo it was that other fellow with the beautiful deep voice uh, and very long hair and beard um he's a he's an ex he's an ex-junkie ex-crim he used to break into houses in the affluent suburbs of melbourne his his personal story is well known now he's reformed of mm-hmm. course but and and he gets a fair bit of work i think in cameo roles in um, you know in various tv productions he has a beautiful voice he's you know he's a very um, beautiful beautiful looking man i have to say with a beautiful voice very deep mm-hmm. mellow voice and obviously a lot of personality and, and good luck to him, you know. But they've they've uh, enlisted mm. him to publicise their their new style kindergarten, which nice. is yeah. on the face of it a, a terrific idea. But they have to add this word "indigenous" to everything now to give it extra cachet. Yeah, it's there crazy. is a bit of that happening. Yes, definitely agree with you there. Right, um, section forty four last year. Two years ago, last year, section time flies. 44. Two years ago. Oh, Two that was about ago. our. Elected members having yeah. dual citizenship. So the two parts to Section 44, one is if you owe allegiance to a foreign power, then you're not allowed to sit in parliament. And it turned out that a number of parliamentarians whose parents were immigrants meant that they were technically themselves citizens mm-hmm. of the country that their parent had come Including from. Including our Deputy Prime and Minister. And therefore owed an allegiance and were found by the High Court to be ineligible. Mm. And the second category was uh, we've had over time is people who have some sort of financial relationship with the Crown. I think there was one guy who was leasing his premises to the public service, to a post office or something post like that. Post office box. That made there. him ineligible uh, as well. So um, I didn't think it wasn't, that the family, wasn't that the family first guy? Didn't that make him ineligible? No, the family first guy lost his seat because he had to declare personal bankruptcy. Ah, okay. Because he had provided... Uh, director's guarantees and that sort of stuff to his mm. building business that was going right. belly up. Right. Just point that microphone just a fraction more up at you. Yeah, that's it. Yep. Thanks. Um, Peter Dutton, of course, his um, so, yes. family so, business, so Peter, daycare centres or yeah. kindergartens or something. Yeah, okay, let me get to him. So that's Section 44 and we lost a number of fine politicians as a result. Fine, upstanding. Wipe the tear yeah. from your eye. We didn't <laughs> lose any Scott. fine politicians. They lost uh, Anyway. Barnaby Joyce, come on. Barnaby Joyce lost his seat. Well, didn't lose his seat. He ended up winning his seat back. But anyway, I just – all of them that fell over fell over for a bloody good reason. I I was just having a bit of a joke. 
I hope so. (laughs) Anyway, uh, there's a link to an article here which describes how some pensioners have too much time. (laughs) And there's been a guy, uh, Tony Magrathia, who spends his time um, um, checking on what politicians are up to and and following through when when they're telling porkies. And he wages a one-man campaign against politicians lying about their ancestry. And uh, he was the one who made a claim against Malcolm Roberts under the Common Informers Parliamentary Disqualification Act of 1975. So he successfully sued and got $6,000 from Malcolm Roberts. He was the one who... On what basis? Well, because Section 44, it's a marvellous section of the Constitution, (laughs) like totally overlooked until recent times. Uh, Section 44, well, no, Section 46 says, until the Parliament otherwise provides any person declared by this Constitution to be incapable of sitting as a Senator or as a member of the House of Representatives shall, for every day on which he so sits, be liable to pay the sum of £100 to any person who sues for it in any court of competent jurisdiction. So the start of that said, until the Parliament otherwise provides... So Parliament did otherwise provide, and under a Common Informers Act, said that um, uh, the penalty under the Common Informers Act was reduced and $200 um, for every day they sit in Parliament after receiving notice of the suit, So, and a 12-month statute of limitations. So anyway, it was under that. So... Constitution said there's a financial penalty and Common but, Informers Act. But what was Roberts doing that he shouldn't have been doing? He was ineligible through citizenship oh, issues. Yeah. His yeah. parents were British or no, he I think he was born in India because his parents were British colonists and he was born over there in India, I think. Mm. And that's why they said that he was British. Anyway, Josh Frydenberg. Yeah, this is, was really very interesting, wasn't it? His mother is Hungarian. And at the time, there was talk about him and, well, are you ineligible, Josh? And he said, well, my, my mother was effectively stateless. And she wasn't. Because she was Jewish and because of the Holocaust and yeah, through I mean, the way things work, he was saying she was stateless. If you were a Hungarian Jew, you were extremely lucky to be alive at the end of the Second yeah. World War. You know, because the Hungarian Jews were... The claim for refuge was reasonable. Absolutely, yeah. In the circumstances. But she wasn't technically stateless. No, she was Hungarian. And... Yeah, well... I think both his parents were Hungarian, weren't they? Well, I think only his mother came across, I think. Okay. Um, Maybe his father had already passed away, but I think his mother and and then grandparents. But uh, we've got... uh, his actual immigration papers, which I'm going to put up on the screen for those who are watching on the uh, live stream, which includes D. Thanks, D, for tuning in. And Warren, Warren was the beer sponsor. <laughs> Bonjour from France. He's he's peddling in the Tour de France, and he's listening and watching on our live stream. Good on you, was. I don't think he's actually part of the Tour de France. No, but, but he's doing lots of cycling. Yeah, he's riding around, course, having yeah. a great old time, enjoying the beautiful scenery. Yeah. Good on you, was. Good on you, was. So, um, welcome aboard, was. Yeah, and enjoying culinary delights yeah. on the side. He is. So, um, so anyway, up on the screen uh, is a copy 
of the actual sort of um, paperwork that was submitted when Josh Frydenberg's mother entered the country and they're described as Hungarian. And uh, he could have some real problems. He, to be safe, he should have renounced any Hungarian citizenship. Like he should have just written to them and said, I renounce whatever I may have, but he didn't. And so he's in trouble. He could, oh, really? Yeah, he could come up with a Section 44 problem. So he should have just done it out of an abundance of caution. Absolutely he should have. But instead he's – anyway, it, it was absolute insanity that he didn't do it. Mm. Because wouldn't you think that when all the other guys were dropping like flies, he'd sit there and think, Jesus, I might have a problem here. Mm. Anyway. Anyway, and Dutton, of course, has a family trust that's involved in childcare and he's saying that uh, he doesn't have – beneficial interest but um the constitution well the constitution says no mp may have any direct or indirect pecuniary interest in any agreement with the public service of the commonwealth and arguably the benefits for his wife and children because the commonwealth will mm. be paying them a lot of money yeah. for uh, childcare um, subsidies yes so he could have an issue as well so the high court has shown that it's happy to um be quite tough on these things, so we'll mm. see. That'll It'll be an interesting one. Tough. Yeah. Uh, Iran and the oil tankers, you guys keeping track of what's going on there? Yeah. More or um, less. The British have lost a tanker. The Iranians have lost a tanker to the British. So the British lost a tanker to the Iranians. It's clearly tit for tat. It's going to escalate until shots get fired, I would have thought. <laughs> well, you were very sort of unsympathetic for the Iranians. I am and you very happy, unsympathetic. You were happy for the British to have pirated their oil tanker. <laughs> well, <laughs> Is they, that a verb, to pirate something? They, yeah, I think it can be used as a verb. They, <laughs> the British claimed that the, they were intercepting um, illicit shipments of oil to the Syrian regime. Yeah. Well, illicit because it was in breach of EU sanctions. Not United Nations sanctions, European Union sanctions. So you sanctions. don't recognise EU sanctions? Well, Iran doesn't, and I say they don't have to. All right. Like, if it's if it's a worthwhile sanction, get the UN to pass it then. Maybe. So, so, Maybe. so anyway, I, I'm... But the Iranians apparently have engaged in direct piracy because they intercepted a tanker, they landed from a helicopter. Yeah. So did the British. The British engaged in piracy. It's tit for tat. Good on them. They're just they're good just, on them. Yes, because they're just saying, "Well, you've got our tanker. We've got yours." Okay. At some point, they will say, "We're going to, you know, we're going to now um, sail another tanker to Syria, and you better leave it alone because we're going to grab another one of your tankers if you do." Like that, they're pushing the point. Like I can fully understand them doing it. Yeah. So. Of course, what does our press have to say about the whole situation? Well, they'd be saying that the British were justified in... Of course uh, they would. Mm. Mm. So there was an article in Crikey that was looking at what the Murdoch press was saying about the whole thing. And uh, let's just see. Um, the Australian said, Brazen Iranian tanker piracy in the Strait of Hormuz underlines the need for international action to ensure freedom of navigation yes. in the world's most important oil supply passageway. Are you writing for the Australian these days, Tothman? Oh, 
Well, do you know, maybe I should be applying for a job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was that. Who are you writing for these days, Trevor? Um, Crikey. Could be. <laughs> Let's see. New Matilda. Meanwhile, the Australian Financial Review says, an international force to police the straits, similar to the long-running international anti-piracy scheme off the Horn of Africa, is the right response. Australia as a good international citizen, should be willing to join in. Rule Britannia, <laughs> Britannia rules the waves. So, no? yeah. So, there we go. The Murdoch Press is saying, let's go, boots in. Yep. Yeah, but the um, Fairfax owns uh, the AFR, doesn't it? Uh, oh, does it? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Does it? I'm pretty sure it is. Oh, gosh, we should... And that's a reputable publication, yes, it isn't it? Um, Do you recognise well, the legitimacy of the AFR? Well, I don't on this issue. Oh. So I think that's <laughs> nuts. Somebody do a quick Google search on that. Right. Um, there was an article I saw where this futurist predicted – well, the, the title is A Futurist Who Predicted 9-11 and the Global Financial Crisis Says There Will Be a Global Crash by the End of Next Year. And this was in a reputable paper. I forget which one. The Australian. And it was the Australian, was it? I don't know. All right. I'm uh, just throwing that out there. Right. Uh, let me just see which one was it. Uh, it was a, uh, I said a reputable paper. It was the Courier Mail. Oh, Sorry dear. about that. Yep. So this is in the Courier Mail. It says, A futurist who predicted 9-11 and the global financial crisis says there will be a global crash by the end of next year. And um, and anyway, he's coming to Australia and he's made a bunch of other predictions. Oh, he's not Australian. I think he's – I think he was American. But I thought, well, that's interesting. A guy who predicted 9-11 and the global financial crisis, I'll just do a quick search to sort of look at his predictions and when he made them and how he made them. Googled away, could not find – a skerrick about this guy. Like nothing, nada, nil, But did you think zero, his predictions zilch. were particularly extraordinary? I, I don't believe that he made the predictions. Oh. Because where are, I can't find them on the internet. Well, that's interesting. You Google his name, you Google predictions, you Google GFC 9-11, nowhere it appears mm. that this guy in some raggedy old paper or anywhere where he's made these predictions. So anyway, so for a start, I can't accept that he actually made the predictions. I need to see further proof of that. Mm. Um, anyway, he said that Donald Trump will win the – so it's fun to look at predictions anyway. Let's just do it. A lot of people that, are saying, saying Donald Trump will win re-election. Yeah. What do you think, Scott? Um, I would hope that he doesn't win re-election, but uh... – it depends on what the Democrats get their clown car under control because right now they've got far too many candidates for the position. And and a lot of clowns on the car. Absolutely, there are. And, you know, Bernie Sanders, God bless him, but he's too old. He is a little bit. He's too old. I would have thought that Bernie should be redirecting his efforts into Elizabeth Warren's campaign because she is very much a left-leaning. And they're sort of coming from the same place. Absolutely, they are. You know, I would have thought that he would be better off pushing him Pete Buttigieg, he's probably too young, but, you know, he's uh, quite an interesting bloke. I would have thought he'd be better off backing the guy that wants the universal basic income whose name escapes me. Mm. He's an Asian bloke. Can't he's an American bloke, I believe. Oh, American Asian. 
You have to be born in America to be eligible to run for the Absolutely, uh, he is. He was born in America. Yeah. So, I I look, I, to be honest, I get tired of this extra labelling, you know, Asian-American, uh, yeah, Italian-American. I understand that. But anyway, I was just trying to he remember was, the doing it to sort of just describe him yeah. in, his, in his mind so he could. And you know, Biden, yeah. I think, should pull out because Biden is way too old. Yeah, and he's Biden's, yesterday's news, isn't he? He is really? yesterday's news, yeah. Mm. Anyway. Right. One of his other predictions was that um, Facebook would be dead within a decade. Yeah. Well, one would hope so, but I don't think he's right. He said less than a decade, didn't he? He said it was going to change its name to Instagram in five years or something. Can you see that happening? I didn't see that quote. It just said that Facebook will be dead within a decade. So, But young people don't use Facebook. So many else, old fogies. Yeah. Mm. So when old fogies started... Die. When started we drop using off the perch. no. When they started using Facebook, the young people just left it in droves. Twenty-year-olds don't use Facebook. They don't want to be associated with something that is tainted with our. That's right. That, they were keen on it in the beginning, and then their mothers and fathers smell. got on, and their mothers, you know, started liking all their pictures yeah. and started commenting. So it was no longer and they cool. were like, "Oh God, Mum, really? Do you have to?" And so, young people don't post on Facebook. What do they post on Instagram? Instagram. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, Lots of young people now don't even, like a 19-year-old, lots of them wouldn't even bother opening an account. Yeah. So lots of people, yeah, so it's for old fogies. So yeah. it'll probably be around in 10 years, but it's... But he may be right be, about it being yeah. uh, less than what it is now. Yeah, there you go. So uh, he said, chillingly, within the next three years, a popular world leader will be assassinated using autonomous drone technology, sparking an international outcry. That's a pretty easy guess, though, isn't it, really? Because we know drone technology is in advancing in leaps and bounds, and it's only a matter of time before someone tries to use it to knock someone look, off. Look, I, th- I think he's right on the first part, but wrong on the second part. So I think a popular world leader will be assassinated using drone technology, but I don't think it will spark an international outcry because I think the Americans will be responsible for it. <laughs> if there's a drone assassination carried out, who... They already all, do it. In all seriousness, mm. who is the country most likely to, to do it? it off? Well, do you know the technology is so uh, wide, widely spread now? I think it, just about any country, if they really wanted to use it, would be able to. Right. But you're talking about an autonomous drone. Now, the Americans have already said that they don't, they're not interested in autonomous weapons systems. Look, the Chinese are right into this sort Absolutely of technology. Yeah. And the Russians would be as well. Who wouldn't be? You know, seriously. Anyway, they, I don't they, think they'll, bump off, they'll bump off some uh, African or, or Middle East leader of some sort with the drone technology for the sure. The Americans, or as, Yes. Or, Why the or, Americans? Why would because they Because they're the that? ones most capable of doing it. Like, they'll be the ones who actually have the gear to do it. Mm. So, um, yeah. They'll be the ones. Who, it'll be you know an obscure leader, but one who's popular in his own country. Ah, Maduro or somebody like that. So there we go. Got a message on the on this on the live stream from Woz. He says, "Well done, Fist. Flattering photo of yourself. Less than flattering photos of the glove and twelfth. Well played. I do the same." <laughs> oh, wow. Was. Uh, we'll, we'll have to go and check the photos now. Scott. Yeah, yeah. If the camera work here. We're, we're not getting equal flattery on the, no, the image yeah. department. Was uh, I have to use the internal camera of my computer, and they've got sort of webcam stuff hanging oh. around. So that's <laughs> yeah. that's how that's worked out. 
But you're right, 12 looks a bit washed out, so I probably should be changing some setting there and, sp- and spice yeah. him up a little bit. He's looking <laughs> washed out. Washed like, out. Oh, you know what? I'm just going to pause in, in terms of the... I reckon you're looking better now. What do you think, Was? Is that is that better? I think Scott looks fine myself. I think. So I can't Yeah. But you needed some work. So you're looking good now. Well thanks for the extra care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um that's uh that's the predictions from that guy. Um He also predicted um Governments will seriously consider how they can put a cap on personal wealth, thus challenging the capitalist framework. We will shift our thinking away from growth at all costs to how humanity thrives without growth and even negative growth. Economists will say that's impossible, but it isn't if you look at more things than just the economy. So, hmm, we'll see. Some statistics came out about inequality of income and wealth in Australia, Scott, and there was a piece from The Australian, which yes, was, was very good. It was because it was a big surprise. It was a was critical of the current. Um, it acknowledged the level quo, of inequality and made pertinent points about it. Absolutely, didn't try and whitewash it. And it was probably written by some residual old lefty like Philip Adams or something. No, Adam it, was, it, was, it was by their economics editor. Really? Yeah. So it was. You know, he had all the statistics there and all that sort of thing. He had it all lined up there. You know, it's just. <laughs> It's really quite frightening when you read the numbers and I don't want people to get bored reading numbers or anything like that. I'm an accountant so I'm used to it. But I honestly think people should read it and they should understand just how precarious the situation is for a hell of a lot of households in Australia. It is not at all good. And the direction we're going in. so We're going even worse. The bottom line is the ranks of the middle class are rapidly thinning. The number of households worth less than 300,000 rose 11%. The number with net assets between 300,000 and a million shrank by 10%, while those worth more than 1 million jumped 45%. Uh, so, you know what? It's easier to look at a graph. So, um, if you're watching or if you're listening on an iOS device which can handle chapter images, you'll see it. If you are watching on the live stream, you'll see the graph. But essentially, when you look at household wealth um, broken up um, in 20% sort of categories of quintiles, then the percentage of change is just accelerating at the rich end in comparison to the poor end. Mm -hmm. So the rich are getting richer and the poor are not getting richer. It's Mm. just they're flatlining and the rich are just getting richer and the figures tell the story. So um, This has been happening for the last uh, 40 years, though, hasn't it? Well, not so much more in the last 10, 15, in more recent times. The The whole point is the... Government's response to the GFC was wrong. And it was very wrong the way they did respond to the GFC. Because what they did Rudd and Swan. No, not Rudd and Swan. I'm talking about the I'm talking about the I'm talking about Britain and America. What they did over there (laughs) was they going offshore. No, they did. They bailed out the companies that were going belly up. When what they should have done was they should have said, We're not going to bail you out. 
It's going to go belly up. We're going to come in, we're going to buy it, mm. and we're going to guarantee all the debts, mm. but we're going to guarantee for all the new debts, not the old stuff. And none of the people that caused it went to went into no. the slammer. Not one. No, not, not one of them went to the slammer when they should have gone to the in slammer. In fact, they got bonuses, a few of them, didn't they? Absolutely. It was bloody criminal the way it was carried mm. out. And, you know, you would just have to look at there was a documentary I was watching on it. The uh, auctions of Prestige Motors, they went through the roof after the GFC was over. Yes. Now, when they actually calculated how much the British government spent on their financial sector, they could have lobbed 20,000 quid at every household's door. Which would have. Which would have boosted their economy. Mm. But instead they decided to draw a line under it and say, okay, you're not going to lose any money, you know. They protect the moneyed classes. Exactly. And that was what was wrong with it. They shouldn't have allowed the investors to survive. The investors should have gone belly up because Mm. the investors created this problem. The investors created the problem that led to the Red, led to the downturn, it was their fault. Yeah, and isn't that supposedly part of the free enterprise system? That Absolutely. People are free to invest their money <clears throat> and if they do well, they reap the rewards. If they don't do well, if they make bad judgments, they then lose they it. lose their money. Yeah. This is where, you know, we have this capitalisation. These people believe in capitalism when it comes to profits but and socialism when, when it comes to, to losses. losses. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Where we're at, and that, that is the problem. I mean, all it's those bank, all those banks in the US that were bailed out, they shouldn't have been bailed out. They should mm. have been allowed to go a belly up. Mm. Indeed. Look, I'll just finish with this article from the Australian because I never thought I would read this in the Australian. This particular paragraph. No. <laughs> Here we go. Quoting from the Australian: There are no obvious solutions, though. Inheritance tax is probably the fairest of all taxes. Better to tax windfalls from the lottery of birth rather than the fruits of people getting out of bed and going to work. And they don't appear to crimp growth and innovation. The US put a man on the moon when inheritance tax for the biggest fortunes was 77%. There you go. And what is it now? Do they Zero. still have no, oh, they eliminated well, oh, oh, in America, no, I don't know. It's, but it's, here not been it's, it's not been eliminated in the States, but it has been cut back quite dramatically. But would you, Scott, I can't believe this guy has still got a job and he's working for the Australian and he's saying know, things like this. I just cannot believe it. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the inheritance tax makes perfect sense. It really does. Mm. You've got, you, you got to get over this whole garbage with the trusts and that sort of stuff. Mm. I don't know what they're going to do with that, but they're going to have to somehow pull them apart so that you can't just have money just continually flowing down through the trust. You've got to actually have it settle on an individual. You know, when the guy that sets it up dies or something like that, then I think that's when you've got to dissolve the trust. Yeah. Also some statistics on home ownership. Uh, The number of people owning their own home outright has collapsed by a third as house prices have soared fourfold over the past two decades, leaving a growing number of oldest – oh, here we go – Living a growing number of oldest Australians shackled to mortgages as they head into retirement. And, of course, all of our older, you know, shouldn't the sympathy be for the young people who can't enter the market? Exactly. And, you know. I think you hate old people, don't you? I'm ageist, perhaps. I've got a bit to say about boomers coming up. I honestly believe that these boomers should be forced to sell their homes. Right. Yeah, you know, they and they should—they should, should forced ca- to sell their home. Exactly, they should be forced to sell the That's family home and buy a bloody unit. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. In the mid nineteen nineties, almost forty-four uh, percent of people in New South Wales owned their home outright, but 
According to the latest statistics, that's just 29% now. And there's some graphs showing the median house price, which is uh, skyrocketing, and how the ownership percentages are plummeting. Also, uh, got something showing the tax cuts that have been voted in for. And one thing I wanted to get to was um, a bit of baby boomer bashing. Um, so we hear about grandfathering of things. Like in the last election was the classic example. Labor Party wanted to make changes to negative gearing. Mm. And capital gains on investment properties, did they want to do that capital as well? Capital gains was also part of it. Yeah. And if, what they had to say to have any chance of getting through was to say all existing people owning properties, no change, mm. you're safe. This only applies to the future. So yeah. this is grandfathering. So that you, it. yes, which of course favours usually the baby boomer sort of population, right? <laughs> so that's the idea of it. Well, it so, favours those regardless of their age who yes. already have investments yes. in property. Who tend yeah, to but be, most of them tend to be older. Yeah, indeed. And I came across this um, post in, uh, it was on the Science Party Facebook page from one of their people there, and she has a hex debt. And she got notice from the Australian government saying that uh, there's been a change. The threshold for paying hex debt back has dropped. It's so dropped? Yes. So it used to be that you needed uh, to earn 56000 before you started paying back your hex 56, debt. 56000 yes. That's quite high though, isn't well, it? Well, hang on a minute. Then it lowered to 52000 and then she got another notice saying it's now $45,881. Mm. So she made a good point that the sort of grandfathering that goes on for older Australians, oh, we couldn't possibly change the dividend system. Mm. We couldn't possibly change the negative gearing system because yeah. people have made decisions and have got their arrangements in place based on the stuff that we've done. Mm. Too bad for the millennials. Yeah. Like, oh, we feel like dropping the threshold. Yeah. Kabang, we'll just do it. That's don't, right. don't tell us about no grandfathering. No grandfathering for millennials. No grandfathering for millennials. There you go. That's they're not old enough to be grandparents. That's, right. That's clearly, but it's so unfair, isn't it? And here's the interesting part on that is um, um, normally with things as they kick in, it sort of applies to every dollar from now on, but. You could say, for example, um, it, it, the percentage that you um, pay applies to the whole of your income. So, for example, if you earned $45,880, you wouldn't pay any hex debt, right? But if you got a $100 pay rise, then all of a sudden, bang, you're in the payback category and the uh, – let me see, how much do you actually pay um, – uh, you pay 1%. So you actually be behind. If you get the pay rise, you'll actually have less money in your pocket at the end of the day. And even people moving through the brackets, because it applies to your entire income, mm. you could get a pay rise, move up into another bracket, and your actual take-home pay falls behind. Yeah. You go backwards. So genuine hardship on some people if, mm. you know, but, hey, in terms of grandfathering, forget that. You're a millennial. You don't get that. That's for boomers. Mm. Come on, millennials! You've got to rise up, and, and seriously, you've well, got to look, rise up. 
and say no more. What about what about people who have a, a partner or a spouse who's earning a lot of money and they go to university, do a degree, mm. attract a hex debt, mm. and then they don't pay it back because you know, they, they get a part-time job yeah. and they don't earn enough to pay it back. Yeah, good on them. But their partner is quite well off. You don't think there's any obligation on them to repay that debt? I, I think nobody should be paying for tertiary education. At all? That's right. I think you should, if you do the degree within the required time, the normal time, yeah. four-year degree, you do it in four years, it should, it should be free. Really? Yeah. It was good enough for a generation, a previous generation, it should be good enough for this generation. It didn't last very long, though, the free... Right. Uh, tertiary education. How, but, how many but, years yeah, was it free? But you've also but, got to remember but, that, you know, John many, Howard made this point very clearly after Whitlam's funeral. He sa- he took exception to the woman that was giving the eulogy. Yeah. She's, he said he didn't pay anything when he went to university because he got a Commonwealth scholarship. Mm. So all the Commonwealth scholarship did, all Gough Whitlam did was just make it available to more people. But the Commonwealth scholarships were there so that you could go to university and not pay anything for it. Yeah, if you showed, you know, enough promise. Absolutely, school. yeah. Mm. It wasn't just handed out willy-nilly. No, it wasn't handed out willy-nilly, I know that. And if you didn't have the, if you didn't have the right promise and the right marks, you had to pay for it. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not opposed to people paying something for, for a tertiary education. I think it gives them a little bit more incentive to work hard at their <clears> studies. If it's just free... And, you know, already we have dropout rates. I don't know what the percentage is. But there a considerable number of people do drop out after, you know, one or two years. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. But don't you think it's it sort of <clears throat> makes sense to have people pay something, to you know, just to to give it some value? Yeah, but when I went through, when no, I went through and I completed I my degree, I, had, I ended up with a hex debt of $12,000 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I had that. something similar. When I completed my degree after three year, after six years, because mm. I did mine part time, I ended up with a twelve thousand dollar debt. Mm. I think that the average debt now is probably a hell of a lot higher than that. It is it's probably thirty or forty grand. Yes, exactly. So my point being, so long as it's not an onerous amount, but I think it's reasonable to expect people that get the benefits of tertiary education to pay something for yeah, it. Yeah, but doesn't those benefits of tertiary education, doesn't that flow across the entire community? Well, they do, but what about the people who never attend, you know, get a tertiary education, never have those benefits? But don't and they see doctors? Don't they see engineers? And well, they do, but they're also paying for the education of those doctors. Absolutely and they are, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I used to, I used to think like that. I did used to think like that. I used to think to myself, well, you know, you as the person that's got the degree is going to end up with the most amount of money from this degree. Therefore, you should be paying something for it. But I'm also a little bit in Trevor's camp too. I do understand where he's coming from, in that a whole society benefits from having an educated population. They do, but I think people will value their education and put more effort into it if they feel that they're paying for it and if they just sort of, you know, bum around, don't bother studying and just drop out, they've lost nothing. Mm. Whereas the whole community has lost something in terms of its investment in their education. I actually like the idea of what Trevor's just said there. He says if you go through the university and you pass and all that sort of stuff, you shouldn't end up with any bill. Mm. If you fail, I do think you should end up with some sort of bill. 
it's an expensive is, thing. Is it a failure for people to go to uni for a few years, even if they bomb out? Just like just the experience of being there and the exposure. Like, <laughs> yeah, they yeah, went to lots that, of good that, parties. Is, yeah, is but that, that's, that's, is, that's is a little bit. Is it such a bad thing? Yeah, it's that is a, a bad thing. It's yeah. not a bad thing, but is, why should the community pay for their extended holiday? Well, it's, it's paying for the cost of the, of the education. But, you know. It's quite an expensive um, system to run, though. It's not cheap. I just don't think but, the community should pay for an extended for an vacation. You don't expect people to have to pay for uh, secondary education. No. Well, then perhaps the new norm is a tertiary education. Like really you would be saying to people that the minimum now is arguably mm. a tertiary education or a trade of some sort. Mm. So as a community, we want people to have trades or yeah. or degrees. Yeah. And, and you could really say, well, the new minimum is that and and – if you take that line, then you'd agree it should be free. It's it's going that way. But, you know, I look at yeah. a country like Japan where I spent some time and I know that a lot of, for a lot of people in Japan, having a, a tertiary education is, is now considered the minimum. There we go. To, You're to get making my point. Job. Yes, but it devalues the, um, the, the, the tertiary education a little bit as well because a lot of them, don't really study at university. They just they have to get in. Once they get in, they basically cruise for a few years, get their diploma or degree at the end of it, and then well, get a job. It's not their fault that it's easy. No, but if you know what I mean, the 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 degree is devalued a little bit if it's too easy. If it's too too much, it's is, just is a, a secondary formality. education devalued because it's free. No, but I think sec- secondary education should be not uh, vocationally um, oriented anyway. I think secondary education should be about uh, equipping young people with just basic knowledge and intellectual skills to exist in the world that we live in. You know, I think university education should be vocationally oriented. Really? Yeah, you don't? Not necessarily. Okay. So, you know. No, look, I, I'm, I'm with you. Partially, Trevor. I think university education, at least the foundation year, probably should be a general studies uh, course, you know, where they study history, philosophy, the whole range of things. Exactly. We've discussed this before where in, say, America where you you sort of your your initial years are done in generalised sort of study, which could be anything. So maybe those years should be free. Okay. And then the extra years where they go vocational, they should pay for them. Maybe. Well, okay. Yeah. Can't get you to we'll work something out. Let me just quickly go back to the um, the hex debt. For example, if you're on 52500 a year, you pay 1%, which is $525. It's not a lot. If you get a $500 raise to 53000 you enter the 2% bracket, and the 2% is applied to your entire income. So you pay 1060 So that increase of 535 that erases your rates. There mm. you go. That's interesting. Mm. Baby boomers would be up in arms writing to their members and saying, it's intolerable. Mm-hmm. I rely on that $35 a week for my living. Mm. Otherwise, I'll be buying dog food for dinner. Exactly. Yeah, another I've one. got a book at home called Please Just F Off, It's Our Turn Now, Holding yeah. Baby Boomers <laughs> to Account. <laughs> 
There's also an article here from Crikey about private health insurance basically saying the system is getting more and more stuffed and the problem is that the young people are not signing up because they know it's of poor value. They know there's nothing in it for them. And look out, millennials, because they're going to pass more laws forcing you to enter private health insurance, like it or not. So they're on their way. It's, It's coming. Just I just it. don't understand why the government is so obsessed with private health insurance. It's just it makes just their no business mates have shares exactly. in the private yeah. health insurance companies. Why else would they be interested? Yeah. But why exactly. does Labor insist on Labor's lost its way? Labor has totally lost its way. Mm. It doesn't know what who who or what it stands for anymore. No, it doesn't. It really doesn't. It, it doesn't understand that it's supposed to be for the working class. Mm. It's entirely lost. Well, the world's confused of politics and class and race and identity yeah. is the problem. So it used to be that the Labor parties were for the working class, the Liberals and was it Conservatives. And was it you that sent us that the, article from Kenan Malik? Yes. He is on the money. He is. I mean, people have forgotten that class is still a thing. Yes. People seem to think that. Class doesn't matter anymore, but it does. Yes, and it's defined by by income and wealth. And, and and a political party that used to represent a particular class, well, both parties used to represent a particular class, mm. but no longer do. So yeah. the but, Labor Party, in particular, by passing those tax cuts, has yeah. completely lost touch with. Yeah. They've with shown its, how out of touch they are. Yes, so they've been of sort of they've fallen into the trap of of. Of catering to identity politics, yes. they're now more concerned with Image. Mo- minority identity, it seems, rather than working class Indeed. identity. Yep. Um, so there's this fracturing where people, society used to be divided between lower class and upper class, basically, in a political way. Yep. And now all that's... But government... Sp- like working class people now are voting for, because of immigration laws and because yes. of perceptions about tax... Uh, that they think is going to affect them more than... And there's something in that too because, well, as often, we know, when migrants generally will take jobs away from middle-class or working-class people um, more than they will from rich people. Yes, so that, exactly so the right. They've got a legitimate um, perception concern is a that, yeah. that rich people don't have. Exactly yeah. right. It's very easy to be a well-to-do mm. journalist in Canberra or uh, whatever. Mm. Your job's not under threat by... And your a, lifestyle's not an, under threat. ...an Afghan refugee coming yeah. to the country. But if you're an Uber driver mm. or a uh, Uber Eats sort of person and you're in the gig economy... Yeah. Then yeah, you your job is under threat. Yeah. People who don't have skin in the game, it's really easy for them to to ignore that. So, um, well, just back on class, then I'll, I'll quickly divert to George Monbiot. Um, he wrote um, together with a bunch of other people. They wrote this article, um, basically looking to improve. Well, they took aim at the oligarchs and the one percenters and suggested a whole bunch of things that would improve the prospects of the great majority of people. And what they found was that there was this huge backlash in the media, in the papers in England. This is in England. And um, 
there were basically a lot of falsehoods painted about what they'd said. And uh, he really pointed out that, that newspapers and the regular media, even though people aren't buying newspapers and aren't watching the media, they still have their influence. They still set the agenda for what people talk about. And people thought that Facebook and social media would create this unique community-driven news service. But invariably what gets shared is initially generated by mainstream media. And you would know that from your experience on Facebook. A lot of things are sharing of articles that have been printed in mainstream press. So the so-called sort of um, community press within social media is actually just a lot of regurgitating mm. of mainstream press. It's true, isn't it? mm. That's part of our problem. Mm. Yeah. So um, so he was sort of pointing that <clears throat> out and he made some a good point here um, about the falsehoods that, that were painted about the sort of socialist ideas that they were promoting. And he said that um, the common factor in all of these articles is their conflation of the interests of the ultra-rich with the interest of the middle classes. While our proposals take aim at the oligarchs and would improve the prospects of the great majority, they are presented as an attack on ordinary people. Mm. Progressive taxation, the protection of public space and good homes for all should strike terror into your heart was the way these are painted. That's definitely happened with ScoMo and the LNP this country. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, when Labor government tried to introduce the mining tax it was painted on as an attack on working people by the um, vested interest wasn't it Mm. Uh, he says here the old threat has not abated it has intensified if a newspaper is owned by a billionaire be suspicious of every word you read in it check its sources question its claims Uh, withhold your support from any party that allows itself to be bullied or worse guided by their agenda stand in solidarity with those who resist it. So um, I reckon the Labor Party just allowed itself to be bullied on those mm. tax, tax cuts. So should we be supporting the Greens? <laughs> well, Not when, you, when, you did, lungs. when you did the vote compass, you, you probably ended up closer to the Greens than anybody else. Uh, yes. You possibly did. Yeah. yeah, so you should have voted for them. Well, no. Yeah. No, I shouldn't have voted Why not? Because they're such a bunch of postmodernist loonies. You know, they, they're virtue so they're not per- So they're not perfect is what you're saying. Gosh. No, I'm saying that they're misguided, that mm. they, they read, uh, you know, human society in completely stupid ways. <clears throat> you know, postmodernism is a, is a you know, intellectually bankrupt uh, philosophical discourse. Mm. Right, back to class, Ken and Malik. I've got a link here to a couple of articles where he talked about class. Mm. And, you know, the one, the idea that I really quite like, and this has got to be in our Indigenous discussion mm-hmm. next week, is that you don't hear of working class Indigenous people as opposed to upper class Indigenous people. Like in, in any other minority group that you might want to talk about, you don't hear about working class yeah. Chinese community or yeah. upper class Chinese community. The so working when they're class on a, on a panel, on a discussion panel, they mm. don't say, I'm a working class Australian. They say, 
Speaking as an Indigenous Australian. Well, yeah. Or, or speaking as I, a Chinese Australian if, or whatever. If you were to say, I'm a working class Australian, immediately you only think white because in minority groups are painted as if there is no uh, class distinction yes. within of minority groups of upper, lower and middle. Yes, yes. Yeah. And and in fact, Indigenous people should, I, I imagine most of them would identify in financial terms yep. as either working class or some of them are middle class. Obviously, some of the better educated yes. and, and successful ones are very middle class. Mm. But a lot of them are below working class, aren't they? They're either working mm. class or, or, or just poverty stricken. Yes. Yep. So they should be identifying with the working class. They should be. And, and next week when we talk about the voice to parliament on behalf of Indigenous people, well, which which branch of Indigenous people are you going to be speaking about? The the lower class, the working class, or the upper class? Mm. Like, how can you? It's this idea that they're all homogenous and the same. When they're within those minority communities, there are working class and upper class. Mm. And the problem with identity politics is that it's it's broken our communities into these separate silos. Yeah. And it has disempowered the working class. Very much so. And it's the working class white people can't connect with the working class black people because of this identity politics mm. issue. So we need to... And the white, white working people. class are seen as inherently privileged. Yes. You know, no yeah. matter how and, difficult and, their lives are, they're seen as privileged. Yeah. And, of course, they're going to, um, you know, reject that. So... Um, let me just see. I don't know. We're going to wind it up soon. But okay. in terms of next week, just, just to make sure I commit myself to doing it because <laughs> I've been threatening to do it for a while. So as I said, I've only just um, started writing some notes about oh, yeah. our Indigenous brothers. Okay. Yeah, And you know, we're trying to get somebody on the program to talk about Indigenous matters. Mm-hmm. So I saw, um, I saw this group. Indigenous X and a guy, Luke Pearson, and they were sort of an advocacy group for... That's on The Guardian, isn't it? Yeah, it could have been. I don't know. Have you read any of the articles? Yeah, look, red hot on the sorts of things that we would disagree with. I agree with you, right? And I started writing a letter to them Mm -hmm. to say, would you like to come on the podcast to talk about issues? But I thought, I want to be fair to you and say, these are the issues that we want to talk about, so here's a heads up on what we're going to talk about because I don't want you to come on and say, oh, I wasn't prepared for that. Yeah, like, or that they were tricked into yeah. speaking on a program with which they have a fundamental yeah. disagreement. Yeah. So, Bronwyn, if you're listening, because I know you're keen on this topic, listen <laughs> to Bronwyn, but um, to be fair to people, I want to say we want you on the program. We're probably going to disagree with you on a few things, on many things. Mm. And here's a heads up of the topics and the sorts of questions we're going to ask which um, we want you to answer. Mm. So kind of a – so I'm uh, – so, yeah, I'll finalise this and these are the sort of initial topics that we can talk about next week, Talk Man, Velvet Club, see how you think about this. So this was my kind of letter to these guys and um, <clears throat> we generally want to have a, a deep, respectful and honest conversation about this topic and Indigenous issues generally. With that in mind, I want to give you advance notice of some of the ideas we'd like to raise. One – Martin Luther King would have objected to the Uluru Statement. Malcolm X would have approved. What do you think? Two, 
Modern Indigenous people seem to be claiming to have inherited rights from their ancestors. At the same time, there is an implied allegation that white people have inherited the guilt of their ancestors. Isn't an Indigenous person of mixed race, in effect, complaining of injustices committed by one set of their ancestors against another set of their ancestors? Three, to my knowledge, I have no Indigenous indigenous ancestry, so I couldn't participate in the special advisory body. If, however, my children marry an Indigenous person, then my grandchildren could, in theory, identify as Indigenous and participate. My grandchildren could have more rights than me due to racial profiling. Doesn't that seem unfair? Isn't that racist? Four. In effect, the special rights to be granted to Indigenous people are a recognition that their ancestors were here first that they owned it and it was taken from them against their will. In effect, non-Indigenous people at a legal level are second-class citizens in comparison. That wouldn't look good if we applied the same thinking to refugees arriving by boat. Imagine if we said, OK, you can come in, but we don't like it, and you and your ancestors will be ineligible for certain advisory bodies until they intermarry with the people who got here first. Five, what evidence is there that Indigenous rather than non-Indigenous people know what is best for Indigenous people? Indigenous leaders have been very poor. Anthony Mundine advised against vaccinations. Many Indigenous leaders were against marriage equality. Ken Wyatt is part of the government that through reckless tax cuts has sabotaged the welfare system that many Indigenous people rely on. Six, what is the Indigenous position on refugees? Seven, how can we say there is an Indigenous position on anything? Presumably, they don't all think the same. Are they, like many Australians, split 50-50 on important issues? Eight, is there a division between working class and privileged Indigenous people? What was the Indigenous position on the recent tax cuts? I didn't hear anything. This was probably one of the biggest decisions affecting Indigenous people, but I didn't hear a peep. Mm. Those tax cuts will blow a huge hole in the budget, which will inevitably lead to welfare cuts, which will have a disproportionate effect on Indigenous people. Nine, I think we should be a republic. I think the notion of inherited rights belongs, belonging in the royal family is unjust. I don't believe privilege should be passed on down the generations to a special family based on their DNA. I feel the same way when a public meeting begins with a declaration of respect to elders past, present and emerging. Ten, we should be providing welfare based on need, not race. I would have no problem tripling the welfare payments to disadvantaged Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in remote communities but a wealthy Indigenous city dweller should get no special treatment. The criteria for aid and special treatment should be need, not race. 11. Identity politics is a scourge on our society. Disadvantaged people should be coalescing rather than splintering into identity groups. 12. There is no doubt that Indigenous people are disproportionately disadvantaged in our society. But is that because of discrimination or are other factors in play? Does Indigenous culture work against successful participation in modern society? Let's add Coleman Hughes line. That's a big one. Yeah. yeah. And that was just a warm up without even thinking too hard. I got to 12. <laughs> so I don't know what we'll get to next week. I think it's a good list. So these from. are the sorts of issues we'll talk about next week and we'll write a letter and that will then be our letter to people who might want to come on the podcast and say, pick a topic anyone you like and we'd like to talk about and tell us where we're wrong and listen to episode 213 to see our thoughts. There we go. That's where we're heading. You listen up. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Mm. Right. Well, I have no idea how long we've been. It's probably a long (coughs) short. We had a big break in between when this stream failed, but um, 
Look, it's been really good uh, on my phone. For some reason, it just wasn't latching onto your phone, Scott, mm. but we'll work that out. And Warren, um, if you're still there, <laughs> no, I think he's gone. Uh, have a great time in France, Warren. Looks like you're having a great time. I'm incredibly jealous. Yeah. And we'll be back next week to talk Indigenous matters. And bye for now. Thanks very much for tuning in. Bye now. <laughs> bye, everyone. Absolutely. He's I know not Trev. To con uh, no, no he, he, Big Trev is as honest and straight as he is big. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for iron fist velvet glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show so if you go to our website you'll see a link to patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.